0: Hey everybody! It is Monday, January eighth. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu.
1: and I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts,
0: and we read all the news and read between the lines, so you don't have to. Jill, how was the weekend?
1: Moshe, it was a full-on parenting weekend. My daughter, who is five, was in a play, The Descendants, which was super cute. I mean, it was all—they were all really young, so it was kind of just to get them on stage and singing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it was just, it was, it was just a really nice experience for her. There was a playbill and, you know, getting the flowers at the end, all of that. So we were very, very proud of her.
0: I was a major upset last night. I was expecting her to win a golden (laughs) (laughs) glow.
1: Well, she would have had to have remembered all of her lines for that to happen. (laughs) Um, Mosh how's Florida? You missed all
0: the snow. Misses is the operative word there, Jill. I don't know that I missed all the snow. <laughs> Though I understand winter is on its way. We will be getting into the uh, weather forecast for the week. For those of you in the Northeast who got some snow, there's more on the way uh, for the middle of the country. And then, Jill, I've been nerding out on weather Twitter. There are already early predictions of a polar vortex next week mm. uh, where temperatures will plunge. So anyway, stay tuned for that in the speed read.
1: Should I be the annoying person who's like, well, it is winter? Yes, winter is wintering. (laughs) Winter is wintering, yeah. Okay, with that, let's get to some news here. The FAA grounds 737 MAX 9 planes after a section blows out midair from an Alaska Airlines plane.
0: Yeah, we'll have all the details on that incident over Portland on Friday, Jill. And a reminder to all of you who've been messaging me saying, oh, my God, Moshe, you've unlocked a new fear of (laughs) flying for me, that actually airline travel continues to be the (laughs) safest way to uh, move about. So some context for all of you today.
1: All right. The state of the GOP presidential race with one week until the Iowa caucus. The battle for second right now between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. And it comes as top Democrats, including former President Obama, expressed concern about Joe Biden's reelection campaign.
0: Yeah, we'll tell you about the lunch that they had a couple weeks ago.
1: And how about this for once? More than a week ahead of a government shutdown deadline. Republicans and Democrats agree on a spending plan, although there is still work to be done.
0: Yeah, don't get too excited quite yet.
1: Plus, we'll tell you about the mystery hospitalization of the U.S. Defense Secretary, And how he kept it secret, even from President Biden.
0: Yeah, this one has a lot of folks in D.C. scratching their heads this weekend.
1: As we just mentioned, winter is wintering. Blizzard and storm warnings for parts of Colorado, New Mexico, Texas and Oklahoma through Wisconsin. We'll tell you about it. And the Golden Globes, winners and losers. Or as we like to say, the surprises and the snubs. And Mosh has on this day in history.
0: Jill, will go through a couple of my favorite moments in presidential history. The only time in American history that our debt was paid off. We'll tell you the good and bad of that. Uh, Also, the uh, infamous incident where President Bush puked on the Japanese prime minister. And Jill, as we talk about award shows, one of the most iconic moments in award show history that took place on the red carpet.
1: Okay, let's start with the air scare over Portland this weekend that's led to the grounding of one of the newest commercial jetliners. The Boeing 737 MAX 9 has been temporarily grounded by the FAA following an in-flight blowout at 16,000 feet that forced an Alaska Airlines flight to make an emergency landing in Portland Friday evening. Saturday's grounding led to more than 100 flight cancellations across the country, Most MAX 9 aircraft will have the part that fell off the plane on Friday inspected. It is a process that will take four to eight hours before those planes can return to the skies. The Alaska Airlines plane had departed from Portland. It was en route to Ontario, California on Friday. It had gotten to about 16,000 feet, just about 10 minutes into the flight, when a panel about two feet by four feet fell off the plane right next to an empty seat. It appeared from the inside to be a normal window, but it was actually part of a deactivated emergency exit door that had been bolted inside. Passengers saw a gaping hole the size of the door, felt a rush of air leaving the cabin, and then saw the oxygen masks drop from the ceiling The flight had not yet reached cruising altitude. The plane turned around. It landed back at Portland International Airport. All 171 passengers and six crew aboard the flight were safe, with some injuries requiring medical care. This is according to the airline. Fortunately, there was no passenger seated by that opening. There is no immediate explanation as to why that plug blew out. Photos and videos from passengers inside the jet show clean metal brackets where the plug would be latched with no visible breaks, deformations or tears in the metal. The number of cancellations now will depend on how long it takes the FAA to clear the 737 MAX 9 for flight. But hundreds of cancellations are expected. Alaska, which has 65 of those MAX 9s, expects service to be impacted into the middle of the week. The canceled flights represent about 20% of Alaska's scheduled flights. United Airlines also has the largest number of MAX 9s in operation with 79 planes. As of Sunday afternoon, the airline canceled just over 250 flights, or about 9% of its schedule.
0: So literally, they're a couple minutes into the flight, And what they thought was a window blows out, but the entire section just blows out. The oxygen masks drop. Uh, There's a lot of uh, things to TikTok and social media, videos from inside the cabin here. Uh, Pretty remarkable, though, Jill, besides some personal belongings, cell phones, et cetera, that flew out the plane, everyone remained indoors. One of those reminders to always keep your seatbelt on. And it was able to make a safe landing. So this MAX 9, uh, you mentioned Alaska, obviously, United Airlines, uh, Fly Dubai, Aeromexico are also among the airlines that fly the jet. The plane involved in the incident is virtually brand new by commercial airline standards. This actual plane had just been delivered to Alaska Airlines uh, in the fall. In November, it had only logged about 145 flights uh, over the course of the past few weeks. Now, so nodal reporting we're getting from the Seattle Times. Uh, their report is very plugged in on all things Boeing and Alaska Airlines. Pilots with the airline had apparently filed reports in the days leading up to Friday's incident that they were getting loss of cabin pressure alerts in the cockpit, pressurization warnings that led Alaska Airlines to actually restrict this particular plane from long distance flights over water. But they kept it in service for this flight from Portland uh, down to Ontario, California. So clearly there was something loose here that led to the pressurization warnings the specific issue here is this deactivated emergency door like you mentioned from the inside it looks like a normal window but it happens to be an actual part of an emergency door which is why when you look at pictures of the blowout it has the exact shape of a door it's an emergency door in some configurations of the 739 max 9 Ryanair out of Europe puts more seats in the plane so they require that to be an emergency door in the case of united and alaska they don't have as many seats on the plane, so they don't actually require that to also be an emergency door. So they basically bolt in what is a door and make it look like it's part of a plane. They just plug it. Apparently, it's fastened by four bolts, according to the Seattle Times. It's unclear how many of those four were there or loose here because the thing just dropped out. There were no brakes, no tears. It just popped out. So right now they are inspecting all the planes. Alaska, United, several of the other airliners say that they've already gotten through a number of those planes to make sure uh, that particular part of the plane is secure. They are still looking for the door that popped out somewhere over Portland. The NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, tweeting over the weekend uh, an alert to those who live in Portland saying, look out for this door. Don't touch it. Please alert authorities. It is a piece of evidence.
1: Most certainly this isn't the first time that Boeing has had issues, particularly with its Max planes. And they have said to be doing just kind of a total cultural overhaul because there were a lot of red flags uh, having to do with their planes. And so we'll obviously see if this is part of a bigger problem, but if it is, I I think that that would be disappointing just in terms of Boeing as a company, but obviously it's a little bit too soon to go
0: there yet. Right. They have to figure out what exactly took place here. If This is a larger issue. Uh, As you mentioned, the max has had issues as the max seven, the max eight and the max nine. We're talking about the max nine here. The max eight was the one that got a lot of scrutiny in recent years. That plane was involved in two crashes back in 2018 and 2019. Uh, More than 300 people died in those crashes. One was a Lion air jet over Indonesia. The other one, an Ethiopian air jet that went down over in that country. Both crashes were later associated with a malfunctioning system that overrode pilot commands. Those crashes led to a nearly two year grounding of all 737 MAX planes as Boeing tried to figure out what was going on with them. They would eventually learn a variety of things, including that competitive pressure, a flawed design, and problematic oversight had played a role. In the issue with the MAX, and by the way, we should mention that the MAX planes are the best-selling jet in Boeing history. In the fallout from all of that, Boeing agreed to pay $2.5 billion in a settlement to the Department of Justice to resolve criminal charges that it actually had tried to defraud the FAA, which regulates the company. They then paid an extra $200 million uh, after uh, effectively lying to investigators, saying it was totally pilot error that led to those MAX crashes when it turned out to be a software Glitch. The entire saga, by the way, has cost uh, Boeing more than $20 billion, according to the New York Times. So after this long review, the fines, etc., you know, it was declared safe again. And so uh, this is unrelated. We should mention this appears to be a, a bolt issue, not related to the software issue that led to the grounding for two years, still the latest bad headline for Boeing in the MAX. Well,
1: clearly, most there's a lot to figure out in this specific case and whether it's systemic or, or if this is kind of just like a, a one time thing. But for people who have a fear of flying or who maybe didn't, but this is now kind of unlocked a fear of flying, you did post some really helpful context over the weekend that should at least bring down the blood pressure here. Uh, walk us through
0: it. Yeah, so this is very specific to the MAX 9. And a larger reminder, as you note at the top, this plane was going 400 miles per hour, was several miles up. Literally a piece of the plane fell off. And yet the plane stayed intact. It landed safely. With seatbelts, people were safe. The fuselage, the rest of the fuselage stayed intact. The flight attendants did what they were supposed to do. The pilots did what they were supposed to do. They got all nearly 180 people back to the ground. Of course, some belongings were sucked out there. And there was an element of luck here that that particular seat next to the panel didn't have a person in it. This whole ordeal lasted 20 minutes. Obviously, terrifying needs to be addressed here. But important reminder for all of you, there's only been one commercial plane crash in the U.S., going back 16 years now. That's out of hundreds of millions of flights, hundreds of billions of miles uh, that were traveled. And so when you look at the numbers, significantly safer by leaps and bounds than riding a motorcycle, riding a moped, driving a car, taking a train. Uh, It's just that in a plane, you don't feel in control, right? But a reminder that more than 40,000 Americans every year die in traffic accidents, and many more are injured in accidents. So despite what we see there, aviation safety taken very seriously, or they have effectively a zero tolerance policy. And when you look across society, there's very few industries that have a zero tolerance policy for a single incident or death, except maybe nuclear power plants and aviation. You know, we have a much lower threshold for mass shootings, etc., you know, not addressing them. Whereas in aviation, every single one of these incidents is taken seriously. It's from the flagpole, the deal with regulators, etc. It leads engineers to make planes much safer and it comes as we told you about that incident last week the japan air incident that literally hit another plane in japan as it was landing the plane was on fire and yet everyone safely got off the plane 300 people with no significant injuries there so modern jets made very safely of course this incident you know freaky for those who are bored and those who are watching this uh, but uh, important context there there's a good twitter thread by this journalist charles fishman that i posted a few slides of over the weekend
1: All right, Mosh, let's talk politics. Today marks one week until the Iowa caucuses when the first Republicans in the nation will vote for the next GOP presidential nominee. With former President Trump dominating in the polls with a 20 to 30 point lead in the state, it looks right now like it is a battle for second place. The rivalry between GOP presidential candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley has become a leading storyline. The two are in an increasingly divisive contest to emerge in Iowa as the preferred alternative to Trump for the party's 2024 nomination. Florida Governor DeSantis said that he expects to win Iowa despite trailing far behind Trump in the polls. He portrays Haley, who has been surging of late to tie him or in some cases lead him for second in the polls, As a puppet of wealthy donors and someone who has flip flopped on key issues, DeSantis has shaken up his campaign staff and recalibrated his message several times over the past year and has bet heavily on a strong Iowa finish. He's visited all 99 counties in the state. Haley, meanwhile, has accused DeSantis of misrepresenting her record, especially on taxes and of falsely portraying himself as tough on China, DeSantis would shock the race if he were to beat Trump in the caucuses. It would be pretty remarkable, but anything can happen, having seen late surges in other contests. But Trump's lead does seem insurmountable. Both Haley and DeSantis went after Trump over flip-flopping on abortion, his past campaign promises, and electability Thursday in back-to-back town halls that were hosted by CNN, The ramped up aggression is a new tact for DeSantis and Haley as they vie to overtake one another and deny Trump the nomination in the 11th hour of this primary season. They have been treading carefully, avoiding really taking him on until now, given Trump's popularity in the party. Trump has been operating at a different level. He's avoided debates. He is attracting tens of thousands of people to rallies in larger cities since the fall, packing events into the final stretch of the campaign in every corner of the state. His campaign has spent months organizing caucus goers and recruiting captains responsible for turning out voters next Monday. Most just a reminder, caucuses are like their own animal. <laughs> they don't operate like a regular primary that I, that I think most of the country is used to voting in.
0: Yeah, there are these open forums. Basically, this game of Red Rover, will you come over? Literally, people will go to their local uh, village hall, local uh, high school gymnasium, literally stand under a sign under DeSantis, Haley, uh, Ramaswamy, Trump. Uh, There'll be an initial count taken. Then you'll spend some time trying to convince people supporting the other candidates to come over to your side. And then a final tally is taken. And that's how a caucus works. Now, it has become less and less popular through the years. More states have picked up primaries. Iowa has gotten its share of criticism that, you know, in modern times, they should go to a secret ballot like, you know, most other states. But Iowa maintains this is the way it does its business. There's a few other states that do this as well. Um, All the candidates were out, including Trump, over the weekend. He's actually campaigning um, after taking some time off the campaign trail. And he is spending time addressing uh, the folks running against him. He has tried to ignore them at times. But he spent time, as is his way, mocking both DeSantis, who he still calls Ron DeSanctimonious, and Nikki Haley, who started calling Birdbrain, to supporters. Yes, he's still doing the insulting nickname thing um, in his now third run for president. He says that they're both globalists who care more about the world, more about Democrats than America. And he says they will betray America like they betrayed him. He's still pretty raw about the fact that he doesn't think They should be running against him, that they should have waited this one out, um, out of deference to him, out of respect to him. So he's calling the fact that they're running against him a betrayal. He has ramped up, in particular, his attacks against Haley. Clearly, he's seeing her as the new threat here. He was actually gloating over the weekend that he's already destroyed DeSantis. DeSantis is done here, and now he's just dealing with Haley. Now, as far as Haley and DeSantis are concerned, they have been trying to tread very carefully here because they're still running in a party where Trump is overwhelmingly popular, right? The vast majority of Republicans still have a very positive impression of Donald Trump. Uh, The majority of them right now still want him to be the nominee again. So they have been very careful at how they've been trying to criticize him. Now, in the past couple of days, they've really ramped that up, as you mentioned, saying he only has one term left chaos follows him that's haley's line uh that he didn't follow through on promises to build the wall DeSantis has been hitting him on that DeSantis is also hitting him from the right saying he was too deferential to fauci he would have fired fauci trump never fired fauci haley's been going after trump on the fact that the debt went up by eight trillion dollars while trump was president um so he is by no means to be trusted on spending uh now the question is of course is this too little too late Are Republicans locked in here or will they be open to these messages, uh, to these alternatives to Trump? This might be a little more difficult for DeSantis, who overlaps with Trump, trying to go for that hard right vote, sort of Ted Cruz circa 2016, uh, saying, you know, Trump hasn't deported enough migrants. He's actually noted, and this is accurate, Trump deported less um, individuals than Obama did. So that's where DeSantis has been approaching it. And then you have these Iowa caucuses, which by the way we should note historically speaking, hasn't picked the eventual GOP winner going back to 2000 now. Do you remember the names Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum and Ted Cruz? Well, they all won the Iowa caucuses in 08, 2012 and 2016 respectively, and none became the nominee. Those of course would become McCain, Romney and Trump. So as far as picking the winner here, Iowa does not have a, a great track record of late The last one to uh, win the Iowa caucuses and become the nominee on the Republican side was George W. Bush back in 2000. It is still a place where momentum is made, where a media story comes out uh, before the next 49 states go. And the primary games is very much a media narrative, a momentum narrative. Donors respond to it. Voters respond to it. So that always gives more leverage, more influence to these early primaries, early caucuses. New Hampshire will come next on the 23rd. Now, DeSantis has played a big game here in Iowa. If he finishes in second or even third place, the thought is that he'll have to drop out pretty quickly. That's why Nikki Haley is going for a kill here, because New Hampshire is much more her territory, um, given that it's more independents, more moderates. This is a more evangelical uh, right-wing state among the GOP primary voters, hence DeSantis needing to do well here, and him saying, you know, I can still win, which, by the way, they all say.
1: Meanwhile, there is President Biden who effectively launched his general election campaign for the year on Friday with a speech targeting Trump, who they believe will be his opponent when the GOP process is said and done. On what was the eve of the third anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol by Trump's supporters, Biden framed the coming election as a choice between a candidate devoted to upholding America's centuries old ideals And Trump, who he says is a chaos agent willing to discard them for his personal benefit and put American democracy at risk. He compared Trump to foreign autocratic dictators who rule by fiat and lies. He quoted Trump tweets and comments that his second term would be about revenge and avenging 2020. It comes as The Washington Post reported that a lot of high level Democrats are warning President Biden and his reelection team that they're being too complacent and unimaginative about the threat of losing to Trump. In a private meeting just before the holidays, former President Obama expressed concern and pushed Biden to consider moving his political operation outside of and beyond his White House advisors. It is something Obama did during his reelection in 2012, moving his operation to Chicago, And it comes as polls have shown that Biden is trailing in key states when it comes to a a head-to-head race with Trump.
0: Yeah, some notable reporting in the Washington Post over the weekend about this lunch just before Christmas where Obama um, effectively told Biden, you're going to lose here unless you change something. A top Democratic strategist telling Axios over the weekend, someone wants to light a fire under the asses of some of these people. So
1: Biden thinks he's going to this lovely pre-Christmas lunch. (laughs) (laughs) exchanging gifts, uh, talking about the family. And meanwhile, they're like, listen, buddy,
0: (laughs) this isn't going to work. Obama's like, you better enjoy this White House (laughs) for another year because I don't think you're going to get four more years here unless you really do something. Now, again, we weren't there. This is a leak from the meeting. The Obama people in particular, by the way, have been leaking a lot lately. This is not the first time we've heard this warning from Obama. Clearly is watching this uh, and wondering what is happening at the White House and feeling like they're not listening to him. Hence, the leaks to the washington post the fear among democrats here is that in the spot between complacency and being a zen candidate biden is being way too complacent and way too zen and they want some more urgency right now uh, from the biden folks other top democrats that he's in a hole right now and could actually lose to trump and i guess the feeling is over in the west wing that they don't feel like that's even possible hence all of this so remember 2012 by the way campaign i remember covering well uh, there was a lot of fear in 2012 that obama was set to lose to romney so he moves the operation uh, to chicago and then you know obama is a great campaigner a great communicator better than romney was able to pull out that victory it is a very different dynamic though uh, 12 years later even if biden moves his operation out there both trump and biden are particularly unpopular here they've both been presidents they both would be the oldest president in american history you had january 6th you had covid you have inflation Biden is not a particularly great uh, communicator, doesn't hold rallies like Obama can. So he will have to pursue a different strategy here. Uh, But it is interesting. This is sort of where we're at nine months to go. The Republicans will do their process. But uh, in many cases, you see other Democrats saying, Biden, you shouldn't wait out this entire time. You need to engage in a discussion here. And apparently, according to some of the reporting and actions over the weekend, some of the Democrats felt good about that January 6th related speech Biden gave On Friday, where he laid out the stakes here in regards to democracy, there's been a debate among the Biden folks. Do we go after Trump on issues or do we go after the whole democracy thing? And they feel like they've landed right now on democracy, future of the nation as a way to really incentivize their side to get out and vote for him in November. All right. If you're a longtime listener, you know that both Jill and I have been drinking AG1 as part of our daily nutritional supplement now for more than a year. Especially as a new dad, I can use all the help I can get. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. You get more than 70 vital vitamins, probiotics, prebiotics, and minerals uh, that you need. It's just a scoop of powder uh, with a glass of water in the morning. And then you've gotten everything you need to go about your day. AG1 has been around for more than a decade now. They continually refine their formula to make sure they have a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline Health. And they've been a longtime partner here at Mo News, uh, providing a special deal for all of you in the Mo News community. If you want to take ownership of your health today, it starts with AG1. With the Mo News code, you get a free one year supply of vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can head over to drinkag1.com. That is slash Mo News. Again, the special deal right now, a free one-year supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs. Head over to drinkag1.com slash monews to check it out. All
1: right, time now for the speed read from ABC News. House Republicans and Senate Democrats have come to an agreement on top line spending numbers for the rest of 2024. This is according to congressional leaders. Congress still has a lot of work ahead to cut deals on the individual spending bills, for various government departments left to pass. But this is a key step to dodging a government shutdown later this month. Speaker Mike Johnson's office said that top line government spending will be set at one point five nine trillion for the fiscal year of 2024. That was the level set in last year's bipartisan debt ceiling deal. $886 $886 billion of that is Pentagon funding set out in a defense spending bill that President Biden signed in December. That leaves $704 billion in non-defense spending. Democrats put out a statement that non-defense spending is actually $70 billion higher, but pretty close given a $1.6 trillion budget. The big concern is an impending government shutdown later this month over the spending divide.
0: Yeah, so they're about $70 billion off with a $1.6 trillion budget. This is a good perspective, by the way, as we're talking about budget most of the time, that basically the government says about $6 trillion a year, but there's only really $1.6 trillion that they have choice over because the rest of it has to do with Social Security, Medicare, you know, the, the huge programs the government spends money on annually. And of the money Congress really has discretion over, half of it goes to military, half of it to the entire rest of the government and everything else the U.S. government does. So this was sort of a surprise on Sunday. You know, typically we're used to these, you know, final hour deadlines or these kicking the can down the road. But clearly, Speaker Johnson, Senate Democrats getting together here um, with this deal Now, the question is, can they actually get it done and then break down the individual departments? Because the $704 billion, if that number is right, Democrats, again, say it's slightly higher. They got to give a certain amount to agriculture, to the State Department, to the Commerce Department, uh, to the Homeland Security Department, etc. So will they figure that all out? One of the deals they struck here that made Speaker Johnson happy that he was touting was that uh, they cut $10 billion to the IRS, also, the deal uh, brings back $6 billion in unspent COVID aid funds. So Republican leaders said that was victory for them as well. So now they have to agree to the specific text on the individual bills. That will be a point of contention here. One of the big groups we're going to be watching, that House Freedom Caucus, the far-right lawmakers, they put out a statement Sunday that said the deal is worse than we even thought. It's a total failure. Some were actually using expletives to reporters saying, quote us with those words. So, of course, those are the folks on Johnson's right. Those are the folks who brought down Kevin McCarthy last year. Can Mike Johnson win them over, or will he get with Democrats in the House to easily pass this? And what does that mean for Johnson? Will this group of House Freedom Caucus members push him out like they did McCarthy if he can't get a deal that makes them happy? So we'll have to watch what unfolds here in the next couple of weeks, but it appears here uh, there is a deal. They made a point of announcing this early. Uh, clearly, he's going to try to convince the majority of his members there to support him. And keep in mind, right now, House Republicans, given a couple departures—Santos, McCarthy being gone—they only have a couple of votes they can stand to lose here. The Freedom Caucus has many more than two votes. You know, about a dozen there that tend to vote against uh, leadership on things. So uh, we'll see what goes down. But uh, for a change, Congress getting ahead of itself. When it comes to a deadline.
1: One of the more shocking headlines coming out of the weekend, which says a lot, given that basically a huge hole blew out the side of an airplane.
0: (laughs) What's what's more shocking, a hole blew out the side of an airplane or Congress two weeks ahead of a deadline struck a deal?
1: (laughs) Another surprising headline this weekend, this from Axios, the fallout from the secret that the defense secretary kept even from President Biden last week. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is facing a growing outcry uh, because he did not tell key officials, including at the White House, that he was hospitalized last week. A Pentagon spokesperson set off a firestorm over the weekend with a statement late on Friday evening revealing that Austin was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital on Monday, five days earlier, quote, for complications following a recent elective medical procedure. And then there were no details on what the procedure was or what the complications were. We then learned over the weekend that the Biden administration and even President Biden himself were not told of the hospitalization for days Austin's responsibilities had been delegated to the deputy secretary, Kathleen Hicks, who was on vacation in Puerto Rico at the time. And she was not even told specifically that Austin was hospitalized until Thursday. Uh, that is according to CNN. So she was basically in charge, but didn't even know why she was in charge. Or that she was. <laughs> she's in on charge. the beach in Puerto Rico, <laughs> running
0: the Pentagon. She doesn't know why she's in charge. The defense secretary is in the hospital, by the way. As of this recording, he's still in the hospital. We don't know what the procedure was—a selective procedure. We don't know what the complication was. The president wasn't told what's going on. Right now, there's calls, basically, from everybody to clear up what took place here um a rare joint statement from the top democrat and top republican on capitol hill and the house armed services committee saying we have many questions unanswered we would like to know the surgery the complication your current health status how and when you delegate responsibility the reason for the delays in informing president biden your deputies and congress so they have a number of questions then you had secretary of austin still from the hospital over the weekend put out a statement saying he could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed and he's committed to doing better. He takes full responsibility. That's all we got. Uh, That basically, I screwed up, I'll do better next time. And people are still like, yeah, but we still want to know what is happening right now. They claim at the Pentagon that whatever he has at the hospital, he's able to do what he needs to do. You know, you have Ukraine going on. I you have going on. While he was hold on, while he was in the hospital. In retrospect, remember we told you last week about the U.S. military taking out that top terror leader in Iraq. Well, that was done while Austin was in the hospital, and no one quite knew he was in the hospital um, last week. So there's a lot happening in the world related to the Pentagon, related to war, and so. We will await more details on this. It sort of reminds me, there was an incident, Jill, during the Trump presidency where he went to Walter Reed and we didn't get the details exactly what was taking place there. We have a certain expectation of disclosure. Now, as far as the defense secretary is concerned, the public doesn't need to know as much about that. Um, It's not like the president. At the same time, you know who needs to know about it? The president and other folks at the Pentagon. So that is one of the big questions we're asking here. I did ask some folks with military backgrounds about this over the weekend, I got some folks who are like, oh, Austin's just an army guy. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, in the U.S. Army, you you know, culturally speaking, you don't show weakness. You don't even tell people you're sick. It's not what we do. Again, that's at kind of lower levels in the U.S. Army. He's, again, the defense secretary. Uh, so we will await more details on this. But one of those stories where Friday night, you're like, what do you mean he's been in the hospital for a week and we don't know why? And then the kicker, the president didn't know
1: or his deputy secretary of defense who
0: was on vacation. They're like, you're in charge of the Pentagon now. She's like, cool.
1: Should I cancel this trip? Should we come home? Should should I come back? (laughs)
0: Why should I come back?
1: What is the opposite of army culture? I think it's what goes on in my house when like you have a sniffle and you tell everybody that you know. You're like, (laughs) I didn't sleep well. I'm a little off. (laughs) I'm not going to be okay. There's a
0: happy medium somewhere in between, I think, Jill.
1: Okay, from Reuters, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken holding talks in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia today before heading on to Israel after warning that the Gaza war could spread across the region without serious peace efforts. It comes as Israel said that it now has effectively eliminated Hamas in northern Gaza, and it is looking to do the same in central and southern Gaza, continuing fighting until Hamas is eliminated. Blinken was in Jordan and Qatar on Sunday at the start of a five-day diplomatic effort in the Middle East, seeking to avert a wider war in the region. He is also due to visit the West Bank to meet with Palestinian Authority leaders and head to Egypt this week. Arab leaders want the U.S. to get Israel to end the war. Israel remains intent on destroying Hamas. They found new weapons programs, including cruise missiles, over the weekend in Gaza, They have cut down on Hamas rocket attacks and taken out many of their leaders. Israeli public opinion is still firmly behind the operation aimed at wiping out the Hamas group that rules Gaza, although support for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has fallen sharply.
0: Yeah, that was a notable find. The cruise missiles finding over the weekend, they're discovering through this invasion just uh, how capable Hamas was becoming, the weapons technology that they were developing, Uh, And so the Israelis now are intent on finishing this war, keeping in mind that, you know, they may discover new types of weapons and they want to prevent them from being used. Now, it has officially been this as of this week, three months since that first Hamas uh, massacre in Israel on October 7th, 1200 Israelis killed, 240 hostages taken, 130 still remain um, abducted in Gaza. That was the deadliest day in Israel's history. And it left Israelis with a sense that their survival was at stake hence their support for continuing this war. Now, their counteroffensive, the Israeli counteroffensive, has now killed more than 22,000 Palestinians. That's according to the Hamas-led health ministry there. Israelis say that about a third of the 22,000 were members of Hamas or other terror groups, still a uh, high civilian casualty toll that has led critics to say that the Israelis are taking too many liberties in it's targeting of Hamas, killed too many civilians in the process. The Israelis say that all the deaths are on Hamas for not releasing the hostages, and for not giving up. Meanwhile, related to those hostages, the Qatari prime minister and other officials told family members of U.S. and Israeli hostages over the weekend in Doha that the assassination of that Hamas leader in Lebanon last week by the Israelis has made an effort to secure a new hostage release much more difficult. That meeting in Doha was the first time the Qatari prime minister hosted families of Israeli hostages in Qatar. His message really goes to show how much Qatar is trying to make another deal happen here, but how difficult it is as the tensions rise across the region.
1: All right, switching gears from Fox Weather, it appears winter is awakening with a few systems in store for the next couple of weeks and a temperature plunge expected for much of the country next week. So first this weekend, we had the first major storm of the winter season, dropping more than a foot of snow in parts of the Northeast on Saturday creating treacherous travel conditions in some areas while also bringing an end to a mostly snowless winter so far. After an active weekend in the Northeast, another major winter weather system is moving across the central and eastern U.S., bringing the chance for blizzard conditions, severe weather, flooding, and widespread power outages, Blizzard and winter storm warnings are already in place for parts of Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma, northeastward through Illinois and Wisconsin for the next couple of days. Today and tonight, NOAA's Storm Prediction Center issued a severe weather risk for an area including 4.7 million people for southeast Louisiana, southern parts of Alabama and Mississippi, and the far western Florida panhandle. So be on the lookout for tornadoes and bad weather across the Gulf Coast.
0: Yeah, that's a particular concern uh, today and tomorrow. The northeast, you'll get hit Tuesday into Wednesday. Now, one thing we're looking at right now is below freezing temps as far south as Texas next week. Right now, they're still working on some of the models, but we'll have one of those polar vortexes come down at some point next week. Missouri. Basically, everyone from the Texas Panhandle up to Minnesota, west to the Rockies, east through the Great Lakes, could be put in an icebox for an extended period of time. It's a reminder of what happened in Texas back in 2021, if you remember that February freeze. Just an early heads up. We're still waiting on forecast data, but we want to let all of you know um, early here that we're monitoring it. And finally, from Variety Magazine, some widely expected wins and some snubs last night at the Golden Globe Awards, which typically kicks off the Hollywood awards season, honoring the best of both TV and film. It was a huge night for Oppenheimer, one of the big hits of 2023. It picked up five of the biggest awards, the best drama film, the best director for Christopher Nolan. It was actually his first win, despite previous nominations for Batman and some of his other classics. Cillian Murphy, who played the scientist, also picked up best drama actor. Robert Downey Jr., picked up Best Supporting Actor, and they also won the Best Score. But over on the comedy musical side, the big story was that it was a huge snub for Barbie, what was thought to be the biggest movie of 2023. Poor Things won Best Comedy or Musical, an upset victory over Barbie. Emma Stone also won for her performance in Poor Things, no win for Margot Robbie. It was actually two hours before Barbie, which was the biggest hit of 2023, taking in more than $1.4 billion in ticket sales around the world last year until they won an award. They did take home the award in a new category called Cinematic and Box Office Achievement. Obvious winner there, given how much they brought in. Billie Eilish, the singer, also took home best song for her song for the Barbie film, What Was I Made For? The Golden Globes are seen as a preview of what's to come with the Oscars. The Oscars are set to air on March 10th. We'll see if Oppenheimer continues to dominate and whether Barbie can recover at the Oscars or whether it'll be another big night for poor things. Meanwhile, over on the TV side, Succession and The Bear really cleaned up their categories. The final season of Succession won Best Drama for the third time and three stars from the TV show, Mac McFadden, who played Tom Wamsgams, Sarah Snook. Who played Shiv Roy, and Kieran Culkin, Roman Roy, all won their categories. Culkin actually winning up against his TV father and TV brother for best actor. And I know many of you are a fan of this show as well. Who loses the Bear also won a trio of awards, Best Comedy Series, as well as Jeremy Allen White winning Best Actor for a second time. He was joined by Io Etaberry, who won her first Golden Globe for her leading performance in The Bear. She made a point of thanking not only her agents and managers, but the assistance to the agents and managers. It was a nice moment um, during her thank you speech. She said to the people who answer my emails, you're the real ones. Though before we go, we should note that the show got off to a bit of a rocky start last night. Joe Coy, who's a stand-up comedian who did the hosting duties, not so well known after a number of uh, A-list comedians rejected the show, did the opening monologue to pretty mixed... Uh, to bad reviews. There were a couple cutaways of Taylor Swift not loving the jokes last night. koi actually made a point after uh, some of the reaction to his jokes of saying, yo, I got the gig 10 days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Adding, I wrote some of these and they're the ones you're actually laughing at. We got a big awards season ahead. The Emmys, which were delayed due to the Hollywood strike, take place next week. The Grammys for music take place in February. And then, as I mentioned, the Oscars will take place in early March. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1835. President Andrew Jackson achieved his goal of paying off the entire U.S. national debt. This obviously has a lot of resonance because we told you last week that our debt is now $34 trillion. Well, there's only one time in U.S. history that the national debt stood at zero, and that was in 1835 as Jackson paid it off. Now, the national debt at that time when he took office was $58 million dollars. Six years later, it was all gone. He sold off a bunch of federal land to get it to zero. But it came as Jackson was also, he hated the Federal Reserve Bank. He didn't think there should be a national bank. So he killed off the national bank. So now the government has a bunch of money. They don't know where to put it. They divided the money among the states. The state banks went a little crazy printing a whole bunch of money. That then led to the longest depression in American history, Uh, six years, a huge crash. Now, Not all of it related to paying off the debt, uh, but still terrible fiscal management by Jackson, though, that top-line headline, oh, he paid off the debt. That sounds great. Yeah, but also our worst uh, financial situation followed uh, after that. So just a fun fact for you all, a little presidential trivia related to the debt. A little other presidential history. We're going to forward about 150 years uh, for this one, Jill. On this day in 1992, President George H.W. Bush... Vomited on the Japanese prime minister. People might remember the photos video. I'll be posting them on Instagram because it's one of those of course you will just be. Like... <laughs> 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 it happened at a state dinner in Japan. Uh, apparently the president at the time got some sort of foodborne illness. Uh, you see Barbara Bush, his wife, come into move into action very quickly uh, to grab him, cover him up as she saw what was taking place there. Bush apparently quipped to his doctor, please roll me under the table until the dinner's (laughs) over. So embarrassed as to what (laughs) took place. Uh, The spokesperson for Bush at the time told the media who was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And the spokesperson, Marlon Fitzwater, goes, the president is human. He gets sick. But one of those more famous diplomatic incidents in American history.
1: What are the odds, though, that of all of the places to throw up like you could throw up on your own plate, you could throw up on your own lap that yeah. he like, threw up on the Japanese prime minister?
0: Don't know the odds there, Jill. But if somebody's <laughs> eating their breakfast while they listen to this podcast, I'm gonna be ready to move on to the next topic. <laughs> you love this story just as much as I do. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll see everyone back here next January 8th to remind <laughs> folks about it again. <laughs> all right, a bit of pop culture history before we go. 23 years ago today, music and fashion history was made, Joe, Britney Spears, and Justin Timberlake coordinating Canadian tuxedos clad in all denim on the uh, red carpet of the American Music Awards.
1: So, Mosh, a few days ago, we got a note on Instagram from someone who was like, love the podcast. I'm here for everything you guys are doing, but... I'm a little bit younger than you and Moshe, and I'm looking for some on this day, you know, kind of like for my generation. Does that count?
0: I feel like that counts. I don't know, Gen Z. Let us know. Is that new enough, historically speaking, or does it have to have happened in the past 10 years while you were going through high school and college? If so, we will work on trying to get more teens headlines, as in the 20 teens for you, in coming on this Days in History. But before we do that, let's go back to 1968. <laughs> because on this day in history Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding was released Jill
1: I mean it is I happen to love that song obviously it's a great song
0: and I hope that those of you in Gen Z also appreciate it I got a couple other notes for you on this day this is more geared towards my Gen Xers older millennial crowd on this day 34 years ago Janet Jackson released her song Escapade And finally, on this day, David Bowie released his 25th and final album, Black Star. It was also his 69th birthday. He would actually die two days later. This album was called Black Star. So, Jill, run the gamut here (laughs) with our pop culture history. But I'll try harder for you, Gen Z. I promise.
1: Mosh, we aim to please here on the podcast. Uh, And with that, a big thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear. Please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store.
0: And if you have good places for me to go for Harry Styles on this day in history and other (laughs) uh, related (laughs) pop culture Gen Z news, (laughs) DM me over on the Insta. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.